Hello, and welcome to the All Things Narrative Podcast, where we explore the relationships between the stories we love and the stories we live. I'm your host, Derek Hatch, and let's get started. All right, what's up everyone out there? It is so good to be here. Your friendly narrative practitioner, Derek Hatch, with the All Things Narrative Podcast. And thank you so much for stopping by for this episode I'm really excited about because as you maybe know, or maybe you don't, my background with grad school was in a field called narrative therapy, also known as narrative practices, because it extends beyond just the realms of therapy. And so in the past, when we've had people on the show that have had backgrounds in mental health and therapy and counseling, they've been people that... I've drafted from the pool of uh, narrative practitioners that I know, whether it be from grad school or from other places. And so what I'm really excited about is I'm having a good friend of mine who's going to be on today. And she's also got a background in counseling and therapy and mental health, but from outside of the narrative realm and practice. And so we're going to have a great discussion today just about her, about what her practice looks like, and kind of talking about some of these different ideas that really shape and inform uh, how we do what we do. Now, of course, I'm not a licensed therapist. What I do is I take some of these ideas that originated in narrative therapy, and you know, it's called narrative practices now by many people because it's moved to a realm where it could be applied to many different avenues, whether it be social work or education or working with uh, organizations. There, there's just so many possibilities. And that's what I love about the world of narrative. And so when I'm talking about these ideas, I'm not talking about them as a therapist, um, but there are aspects of what we do at All Things Narrative that are therapeutic and the conversations that we have people about their life stories, right? And about being able to facilitate and navigate those conversations in a meaningful, uh, productive, and in a safe way, uh, making sure that they are heard, that they these stories are received, and that we are doing the best we can with love and care uh, with every single person um, that we work with. And so I want to introduce to you the one, the only, Karen. Gonzalez. Thank you, Derek. That is quite an introduction. That was, uh, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm so glad to be able to be here on the podcast with you. Um, I think we've had these conversations like a little bit offhand, you know, mm -hmm. bits and pieces, um, not in a structured way like this. So I'm looking forward to yeah. it. Yeah. A lot, a lot of informal conversations in passing, right? So Karen and I have known each other for probably about what, maybe like five years or so, maybe mm -hmm. even longer. Mm -hmm. And from day one, Karen has always had a passion for mental health. So walk us through that a little bit. Take us on that journey. How did you get to this point in your life where you wanted to give yourself, your career, uh, everything that you're doing to um, bringing awareness of mental health and doing what you do through the realm of counseling and therapy? Yeah. So looking back on that, it's such an interesting story because I feel like I stumbled upon this mm. field. Um, and when I think about the patterns of my life and the story of my life, I, I noticed that a lot that, you know, God kind of sets these things up. Mm -hmm. And then I find myself just kind of walking through these doors, not really knowing or having a plan for the future, you know. Sure. Um, 
So I, I got into psychology in my bachelor's degree. I went to Palm Beach Atlantic University. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, how I even heard about the university was in conversation with someone. I didn't know about the university first. How I selected my major was literally in conversation with someone mm. who told me, like, hey, you know, you're pretty good at talking with people. Like, why don't you do psychology? Yeah. Um, since I was on the fence about what to go for as a major, um, you know, then I started, I started thinking about it. And I said, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I selected psychology thinking that maybe I could do something with that, you know, not sure. Um, so, you know, fast forward, I graduated from PVA with my bachelor's in psychology and a minor in biblical studies. And, um, you know, then I kind of had a really good friend of mine that encouraged me to go to New Orleans Baptist Seminary. So I Mm -hmm. did that for about a semester Mm -hmm. and, uh, in, in New Orleans Baptist Seminary, I was doing the online um, track that they have for youth ministry. Yeah. Um, and I took an introduction to social work um, mm. course. And t- taking that course was almost like everything that I learned in that course really resonated with me. Mm. I was like, wow, like this is, you know, like I really feel like Jesus was a social worker at heart. You know, I really, it just all resonated yeah. social justice and just mm-hmm. all of these themes that are really just faith, faith like um, themes, you know, mm-hmm. themes of the kingdom, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and the history of, of social work was basically like the church was basically who had started doing a lot of that work. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I paused New Orleans Baptist Seminary and then I, you know, um, actually took a hiatus from school. and Didn't realize I was going to go back to school because mm. of my my health, you know, health issues. Um, yeah. And then when I did finally end up jumping back in after being encouraged again in conversation, you know, I had a friend that kept asking me, when are you going to apply for school? When are you going <laughs> to apply for school? And uh Wow. I mean, she was very, very persistent. So um, it was also an encouragement. I didn't think I was going to reapply. I, I've always had longed to get a master's, um, but then she kept asking me and then I just went ahead and did it, not really thinking about where that was going to lead me. Sure. Um, and I knew I wanted to, if I, since taking that introduction to social work, I mm-hmm. knew if I went back to school, what I wanted to study was social work. Um, so mm-hmm. I applied for the master's in social work at FAU. Um and thankfully, you know, another thing that lined up is just being with an organization at the Lord's Place uh, that helped me kind of mm-hmm. finance some of that. And, you know, just so many blessings along the way that yeah. I couldn't have lined up. Sure. Um, and just the way that it all worked out, you know, where I am now, I couldn't have envisioned, I couldn't have made a five-year plan for myself to mm-hmm. be here. And so, but I am here and I'm just, I'm grateful. Okay. So that sounds great. So social work was the route that you wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And just walk us through a little bit of this for those of us maybe who don't know. You have the actual degree where you're taking classes, right? Mm-hmm. But do you have to do any sort of like certified hours or clinical hours or, or how does that work? Sure. Um, so if you graduate with a BSW, um, that's a bachelor's in social work, you're only required to take about one more year of full-time courses to get your master's. Okay. So I didn't know that at the time. So I actually had to do the full-time track of someone that didn't have a background in social work. And so mm-hmm. um, FAU had a three-year program. In that program, the last year or the last two years, you would say, um, you do complete an internship inside the program itself. So you Okay. You get assigned, um, you know, to a particular place uh, the, of your choosing that targets a particular population. So you can get some training hours. So you're going to school, and then you're also having an application or an, a practicum piece. Right. Um, and I would probably be lying to you if I told you the exact hours. I think it was like 800 hours. But yeah. Um, so, so in other words, though, it's no light decision that you make. 
when you go into social work or any of these because, you know, you're in like our, I don't know, 452 and you're just like, yep, I still want this. Right. That that's a big deal. Yeah. It really says something um to anyone who's in the social work therapy or counseling fields, right? It's a lot of hours you have to get whether it's, you know, 800 or however many you're dedicating. That's that's a commitment. For sure. That is a commitment. Was was there ever any moment um while you were in this process while you're doing these hours where you're just like, I don't know, am I on the right track? Or was it like, yep, I know what I'm doing. I know I'm called to be here. Let's do this. I remember the very first day I stepped into the introduction um, meeting for social work for that particular cohort. And I remember that the spokesperson, I don't remember who the spokesperson was. I don't remember their name, but I remember what they said. And they said, social work is a calling. Mm. And every fiber of my being, you know, resonated with that. So going yeah. into the program, I didn't have doubts about it because the courses that I was taking um, resonated so much with me that I it was almost like a confirmation. Yes, like wow. it was actually really exciting. I'm in the right place, you know. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your official um, title? Um, so after you graduate, you can continue to do more supervision hours and complete work hours. And after you accomplish 100 supervision hours and... Um, I can't remember the exact internship hours now. Maybe it's 500. Um, it's escaping me right mm -hmm. now. But mm -hmm. anyway, so you, and then you pass the licensure exam, you can become a licensed clinical social worker. Mm -hmm. And so that's my official title right now. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. What does this look like for you now? So as a licensed clinical social worker, you have a lot of different options. Mm. Um, you could work at the macro level and work with policy. Um, you could work um, as a supervisor. You could work mm -hmm. um, doing actual, you know, therapy, individual therapy, which would be considered um, the micro. So that's what social work is known for is just having these different levels, you know, yeah. micro, meso, which would be working with groups and then macro, which working at... Uh, kind of a higher level that is more about social justice and policy making yeah. and advocacy. Right. Um, not to say that you wouldn't be doing advocacy in a one on one role. So, sure. Right now, in particular, I'm working for a local nonprofit, the Center for Child Counseling, mm -hmm. um, and I'm working with a program that's called Child First, um, mm -hmm. zero to five. So, okay. yeah, it's a very specific age range. And what is your uh, what does your week look like? So it's a home visiting program. Mm -hmm. um, so my week is a lot of going to people's homes and mm -hmm. uh, depending on the age of the child, using different approaches to connect with um, the caregiver and that child and uh, work on specific therapies. So yeah. some developmental, some are play therapy skills. So for mm -hmm. older children, um, I, I uh, provide, basically I come with this big bag of toys and then yeah. we... Sit on the floor and I say, yay, Miss Karen's coming. Yeah, that's exactly what they say. And they're very, very excited. Um, so my job is really to treat um, the relationship. So there's no identified client. So for instance, you know, it's not like the child, oh, you know, my child has some issues. Usually it has that's how the conversation starts. You know, usually people come and they want to work on something particular with mm. their child. Yeah. But really the the main goal of the treatment program or basically the the training that I received, child parent psychotherapy, mm -hmm. um, it treats the relationship rather than the individual child. 
Mm, yeah. So you're working with parents and children together yes. and working on that relationship. Mm-hmm. That's awesome because when I think about narrative therapy, it originated in the realm of family therapy. Mm-hmm. So Michael White and David Epstein, you know, the the two founders, uh, that that was their that's their background, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the ideas for narrative therapy actually came in working with uh, children and parents. Okay. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, what I think could be some fun is to uh, to tell you about some of the core, main, essential ideas of narrative therapy and narrative practices, and to kind of get your take on it. You know, as uh, as someone who maybe wasn't trained in that realm in particular, mm-hmm. but you know, you're still in a a family psychotherapy, like you're in that realm there, right? Right, yes. So does that does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's do it. I have a, uh, there's like a dictionary for narrative therapy. Great. Because <laughs> it's, you know. Yeah. Uh, this is like when you, when I did the grad program, they're like, yeah, here you go. Here's like our dictionary of, so that way you know what all this stuff means. So the first one that you're, you, you'll hear about quite often is, uh, you ever heard of externalizing problems? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So, so what's your understanding of that? So, we actually in in the program that we that I'm that I'm participating in, you know, we do a lot of assessments, and so yeah. usually behavior is an externalization of a particular issue, right? So, for instance, like um, aggression or um, wanting to. F- you feel the sense that you have right inside yeah. a feeling and then you're bringing that out somehow. Um, so it's kind of having an understanding or a way to relate to this sense that you have inside. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to read to you uh, a definition here that I have and, and get your take on it. So it says here that externalizing is a principle or a philosophy that refuses to locate problems inside people. The way of thinking, this way of thinking refuses to pathologize people. Instead, we can acknowledge that problems have histories. They are created over time. This makes it all the more important that we speak about these problems and understand them in ways that are separate from the person. The person is not the problem. The problem is the problem. So so what are your thoughts on that? So this phrase, the person's not the problem, the problem is the problem, is a phrase that was utilized a lot through really? the program. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, it it's uh, and it was exactly with the same aim. Maybe it wasn't framed under the the word externalizing. Yeah. Um, and but the concept was taught, was discussed, and it was still something that we um, that we focus on. Right, it's addressing not just what we see, but mm-hmm. this person, right? Or this person has their own story, has their own history and has their own path as to, you know, what happened to you instead mm-hmm. of asking what's wrong with you. It's like, what happened to you? Yeah. Um, because there's a story, right? And there's a reason. And it's not about blaming or about identifying a patient and saying like, well, this is the identified patient. You know, we need to target this person. Mm-hmm. It's more so about identifying well, where is this coming from? Yeah, yeah. Well, and recognizing as well, because this is one of the things I've always, I've been drawn to narrative practices through, is this idea that problems have a context, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, if you have somebody that struggles with being addicted to alcohol, Mm -hmm. what's the history of that problem look like? 
Right. How were they introduced to it? What circumstances were given so that they were able to drink so much, right? And, and, and who was involved in that? And, and again, it's not necessarily like that we're trying to, to, to blame everybody else but the person, right? On the contrary, they talk a lot about how this actually helps us to take responsibility for problems because it actually helps us recognize that there is a story or a narrative mm -hmm. that the problem has us operating in, right? And the good news is that as protagonists of our story, we can find a different narrative, right? We can, we can choose a different narrative, right? We can have that sense of agency, but we have to understand the problem dominant narrative that's there, right? Mm -hmm. We need to figure out how is this problem bringing about a narrative that's dominating my life? How is it operating? How is it working? And what am I going to do about that, right? Which that'll lead to the next category in a moment. But I feel like that's that can be so liberating Absolutely. to know that like, oh, it's just not, well, you just need to look inside and pull something out, right? Or you just need to try to muster the strength within to fight this. You you start to realize that, oh no, there's, there's a lot happening. Right. And if I'm conscious and if I'm aware and if I'm attentive to it, then I can begin to, I can begin to address that narrative. I can begin to move into an alternative and better narrative. Absolutely. And it's extremely empowering to be able to make that choice because you notice when where you can make a shift. So I've also been trained in EMDR. This reminds me of kind of like their approach to mm. um, when else have you felt this way? So like if a person's yeah. bringing a particular issue to you and then they're, you know, they're saying like, this is what happened or this is, you know, they're describing a scenario to you where this is what happened. Um, you can actually ask the person, when else have you felt this way? Mm. And almost always you get the sense that person is connecting back and saying like, well, the same feeling, right? When else have you, I felt this in my body? When else have I felt this sense of betrayal? When else yeah. have I felt this sense of um, blame or whatever the experience is, right? Which is a negative experience or a yeah. negative core belief. And somewhere along the way, you, you can identify or that person may be able to identify, wow, actually, you know what? When my mom, uh, you know, related to me, you know, this, this used to happen or this is how it made me yeah. feel or, and so you do get that sense of there is a story and there is a reason mm -hmm. why I am responding this way, why my body feels this way um, and why my amygdala maybe, you know, may be triggered mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. now I am, ex I am t experiencing this moment as I am not safe, even though yeah. I am physically safe. Right. Safe. Well, and applying what you're saying there, that approach, not just in therapy, but just to how we interact with people in general. Because how many times do we look at people, we read stories on the news, or we see people do crazy things, and we're just like, oh, well, they're just a crazy person. They're just a bad person, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have that labeling that you have there, and and you could even have the opposite too, like, oh, wow, they're such a good person and all that kind of stuff. And that's one of the things that narrative practices really doesn't uh, indulge in. It doesn't give that that sense of labeling uh, because we recognize that people uh, are capable of good and bad, 
choices, right? Mm-hmm. We all are. And we don't want to define people by their problems because then we fail to see their potential and we fail to see the rest of who they are, right? Mm-hmm. And it, and that's the tricky thing is a lot of people, I'm sure you hear it all the time, oh, I'm just a stubborn person. Oh, I'm just I'm just depressed. That's just who part of who I am, you know? Or like there's this almost this self-defeating talk that people have of just, oh, this is this is just who I am. And you recognize in that moment that the person is saying that the problem is a part of them. Mm-hmm. And it's it's it takes a lot of faith for a person to come next to that person and to say, hey, I know how bad this looks. I know this problem, right? But you don't have to be defined by this because the problem is the problem. Right. It's extremely liberating. Um, You know, it makes me think of a story, sitting in a room with a kiddo and a caregiver. And there was basically a moment where the kiddo wanted to see something in her teeth. I'm like, oh, you know, remember when you went to the dentist? And um, and the caregiver was like, oh, yeah, right. The dentist, uh, uh, you know, you had a cavity and the dentist said, you you know, the cavity is behind your tooth. Like it's not in the front, it's in the back. And so naturally, kiddo wanted to go look at it. So, you know, kiddo goes to the mirror and says like, oh, I can't see it. And mom had just said, you're not going to be able to see it. Mm. Um, And so in that moment when kiddo said, I can't see it and... Naturally, what came out of of this particular caregiver was she doesn't believe me. Mm. And so noticing that that moment is not just about that moment, but that moment is about every other moment where you had the sense that someone didn't believe what I said. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it right there. Yeah. And imagine how that impacts your day-to-day conversations with people or the assumptions or the jumping to conclusions that we can sometimes make and how liberating it feels or it can feel for someone to realize like it's, it's something that I'm noticing and this is the way that I perceive and see the world in part because of my prior stories and experiences. Right. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. So... Well, we're talking about the problem, right? Then, of course, uh, I used this language a bit ago of the alternative or the preferred narrative, right? Of like, okay, what would your life be like if this problem was not around or if the problem was not affecting you in this way, right? So we call these reauthoring conversations and kind of little blurb I'll give about them here. This comes from Michael White, where it says that we, where he says, reauthoring conversations, people are invited to attach significance to previously neglected events. And they are encouraged to link these together with other events of their lives in sequences that unfold through time according to alternative themes, or sometimes these are referred to as counterplots. Um, and that people are invited to reflect on the events of these alternative themes or counterplots. There's a new opportunity for them to form identity descriptions that contradict the negative identity conclusions that are associated with the dominant problem stories of their lives. So, mm-hmm. so what 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 are your thoughts on that? So going back to some of the you know EMDR concepts, uh, it goes back to. The idea that, so alongside these patterns of negative experiences, yeah. right, there's also these patterns of positive experiences, right? And that's how we build a adaptive model, right? And that's 
So we can either live out of these negative experiences or live out of these positive experiences. Mm -hmm. But the caveat is the fact that our brain is wired to protect. Yes. So yes. it's very difficult for us on our own to live out of these positive experiences when we have these predominant negative experiences. And so thinking about people who have major negative experiences and little or to few positive experiences, right? Mm -hmm. They have had an underdeveloped adaptive model. And so they may have an overdeveloped over, um, maybe it's been reinforced multiple times through yeah. different narratives and stories and life experiences. And so it's difficult to live out of this place. And so the other side of that, another way of thinking about it is, angels and ghosts mm. right so having angel moments where you've experienced something positive so this isn't about like actual angels it's about yeah, yeah, yeah. positive experiences right and ghost experiences which would be like negative moments in life that got really um identified or that are easily easily um noted in our minds so if you can remember negative experiences the only thing you're experiencing is you're experiencing humanity because well, right because well, that's and, what you and know. that's what if you put if that's what you're putting your your time and your energy focusing on right and maybe it's not even conscious or deliberate right maybe that's just what's around you all the time and it's hard to break out of that well it's a negative core belief right and if we can if we we don't know that we may have a negative core belief, um, but once we become conscious about it, then we may start to notice more of those patterns. You know, but how many people want to be told, like, hey, you know, I'm living out of a negative core belief. But essentially a negative core belief is the way that you see yourself in relationship to the world. Yeah. And it kind of, it becomes a bit of a worldview, so to speak. Well, in belief, that's an interesting word that you use there too, right? Because one of the, the components of reauthoring conversations is contrasting these ideas of, are you familiar with the language of internal states versus uh, intentional states? Not intentional, but internal states kind of reminds me of ego state work when there's okay. different parts of yourself that are held within the same person. Yeah, so let me, let me run this by you. So one of the things that's talked about within these conversations is that narrative practices leans more on intentional state understandings in terms of how to rebuild the narrative versus internal states. So what, what's listed as internal states, and you know this list could vary a little bit depending on who you read, but uh, it's unconscious motives, instincts, needs, drives, dispositions, personality traits, strengths, and resources. So this is something that a lot of those things, a lot of people hear that, and that's actually what a lot of people think of psychology, right? Is they might think Myers-Briggs or Enneagram, or they might think of, oh, what are, what are, what's my personality traits? What are my, my strengths? Strength finder. They might, you know, or what, what are, what's the unconscious motive here going on? So the, the approach that narrative takes is it focuses more on the intentional states because and, and again, I'd love to get your approach and your thoughts on this. The idea is that the 
intentional states, they're things that you have agency over and that you decide for your life. Whereas internal states are considered to be things that maybe you're you're born with or have always been a part of you and you can't really change them. You just know them and learn how to deal with them, right? So like the a list of intentional states would include sense of purpose, aspirations, quests, hopes, dreams, visions, values, beliefs, commitments, and wants. So though in, in those reauthoring conversations, those are the categories of things that we spend time developing with people because they're the things that you have agency over and that we use those things like characters in a story. We use those different things to deal with our problems, right? But I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on all that? So going back to the sense of choice and empowerment, it sounds a lot like you're making kind of a way and helping the person notice that they do have a choice over certain things. Mm-hmm. Now, my my question in you know for you would be, what would be the the approach with someone that has a lot more of a negative system and they don't have maybe some of those strengths or capacities, right, to reauthor or to make those conscious choices because they do have some more prominent mental health issues, you know, like maybe they're really, they're dissociating, they're having, losing touch with reality, they're having yeah. delusions. And so, right. and I'm wondering too, like, you know, what, we want to empower people to be able to make those choices and... I'm wondering too, if, you know, can everybody make those choices? Yeah, and that's a good question. That's something that I don't know if I can even fully answer personally, just because with with me not being a therapist or a counselor, there's only so far I can go in what I do, right, with people. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of this, the what you're describing there, for me personally, that's not where I could go, right? I would have to be licensed and certified and all that yeah. to to do those things. So I, I can't speak for me personally. I, I I do say that one of the one of one of the things that because I, I remember reading articles about the these things, right? And you know, I I believe that narrative therapy can work in collaboration with other forms of therapy and practice, right? Mm -hmm. I do think that there's things that we offer that can complement, right? And then there's there's things that of course are gonna contradict. A lot of that comes with like the the way of how do we pathologize labeling, um, you know, different things like that, right? And how we how we see people, how we treat people. I mean, that could be different depending on whatever your background is and just in general. But I think that where I see narrative therapy thriving is in helping people to realize even in the smallest of ways where they still have that agency, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe they are limited by a lot of different things. But is there, even in a small area, even in a small way, is there some place mm-hmm. where they can have agency in their narrative? Yeah. And and how can focusing on those intentional states, how can those really bring about that, right? How, how can they help that person to find agency with what they have 
And how can externalizing problems and all that, how can that help people to to be further along than they than they already are? I definitely agree that it can be very therapeutic to be able to have the tools to be able to tell your story, one, because that's validating, right? Yeah. And that's, that's empowering. And then to be able to reframe that narrative. A lot of times, sometimes people just need to be heard, yeah. right? They just, Absolutely. They, they just need to make sense, right? And our brains are so wonderfully made and mysterious in a lot of ways that sometimes even just being able to put something on paper and write down a story and kind of put it into a story form can alone be very therapeutic more so being able to speak that out loud to another person who cares right or to another person who's holding space or to be able to do that or display that in public is also very therapeutic right um but you know what you're saying makes me think of um exception questions like for instance Mm. you know when i was in my master's we would discuss different types of questioning and you know along with motivational interviewing we would discuss yeah motivational interviewing um, exception questions and so it would be something like tell me about a time where um you you know the the outcome was different you were able to do this and it's more like solution focus you know so it's more helping that person navigate the conversation if someone comes and says well i can never get things right well, tell me about just, you know, one one time where even in something small, you were able to um, manage getting something right. You were able to mm. navigate that. And so those exception questions helps to challenge the narrative a little bit. Right? Yes, the, yes. The story that we've told ourselves that we're not capable of doing something and that we've kind of reiterated that within our own narrow pathways, so to speak. So we keep telling ourselves in this voice, right, our inner voice may be telling us these things that we've we've held on to for a long time. Yeah. So it's kind of reminds me a little bit of what you're, you're discussing right now. And I mean, I 100% think that narrative practices, just even in conversation here with you, has a lot to offer. And we're actually using a lot of bits and pieces of it. Anyway. That's what so I'm finding when I have conversations with people is I'll explain something and they'll be like, oh, I know what that is. I just didn't know it by that name or I didn't know it was associated with that. Right. Because I feel like a lot of... A lot of this, these ideas, you know, they get shared, right? As they rightfully should. There shouldn't be like a monopoly on them because anything that can help a person, you know, to be the best of who they can be, like by all means, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it needs to be out there. It needs to be to be shared there. Yeah. And I'll say one more thing in which there are similarities in the work that I do. So one of the things that we do with caregivers and with children is to kind of... Um, identify experiences that could be related to the behavior. So usually people say, hey, you know, um, my child is aggressive or my child puts everything in their mouth. My child is doing Mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z. Yeah. You know, we need some help. Okay. My job is to find out the other side of that. So there's this triangle concept, right? So one is behaviors and feelings. And the other side of the triangle is um, experiences. And Mm. on the bottom piece, right, that supportive piece, it would be treatment and how treatment would be able to help. Yeah. The relationship. So, uh, and I'll tell you this quick story. Actually, I was working with this um, little girl and a caregiver, and um, we were getting ready to share the triangle. You know, in this particular case, she's, she had experienced a lot of neglect. So, early life experiences were marked with a lot of moments where she didn't have her needs met. Um, and so, she was uh, taken out of her original home and placed mm. in foster care. Yeah. 
so now she was in a safe place and safe home, you know, and building a relationship with this particular caregiver. And um, I remember sharing the the moment where we were going to tell her, like, hey, you know, mommy was telling me a little bit about your story and we wanted to talk with you about that. And of course, we're using toys and wanted, yeah. wanted to use her um, her her experience, right, and help her to identify and uh, people that we could use for the story. So, you know, could you help us out? We just wanted to pick out a mommy and pick out you. And that particular point, she was not ready. So I remember actually, um, she said, nope, you know, I don't want to talk about this and I don't have to. Okay, that's fine. You know, you don't, what's what's the worst thing is, you know, anyone can experience is being pushed to talk about something or share a story about something they don't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so I remember as we were closing that session, um, that little girl took... A, an index card opened up a book titled What to Do with a Problem mm. and put a bookmark right at a particular page. Hmm. Um, and in a conversation with mom later, I asked her, like, hey, by the way, what page did she stick that bookmark in? Um, what if it swallows me up? Mm, wow. And when I say, you know, sometimes we think we're coming in to bless other people, but we're actually learning a lot from oh, absolutely. the people that we're in relationship with. And it was just that her own way of saying, you know, this is a big deal, right? This is tough. Um, and so in that particular occasion, we were not able to share the story, but we did the following session, right? Then she was ready. She knew. And, and it's giving people that that credit, right? Giving them the the empowerment that's needed to trust that if, you know, and again, it's hard because sometimes children are not coming to you willingly, right? It's Mm -hmm. the parents that are initiating it. But do we trust that people want to be well? Mm -hmm. Hmm. And do we respect, we call these like local knowledges, right? Or we call this uh, being able to basically acknowledge that the person, like exactly as you described, she found that page and that swallowing up the prop or feelings swallowed up, right? Mm-hmm. That, that she was able to find a way to articulate that. Because I think the temptation that we can all fall into in any sort of therapeutic work is, oh, I know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I I got it right here, right? right? But how much more meaningful is it if it's not us lecturing or talking to a person and saying, yeah, so basically it's this, but actually having being able to have the person articulate not only the problem, but actually articulating the alternative narrative, right? It's that uh, it's that difference between like sitting down, you know, a child, like if you're a teacher, sitting down and just kind of being like, all right, here's what you did wrong. Here's what you need to do right. Now go do it. Mm-hmm. Instead of asking questions. Because that's, that's the big difference, right? Is we want to get good at asking the right questions. And I... I mean, I had to do, I only had to do, I think I did like 200 hours uh, for my grad program. I did. I think I did like 200 hours. And what, what I struggle with is being able to, like, I, I, I can be very quick to jump to like, oh, I, I think I know this. I think I know this, right? Mm-hmm. And I had this instructor that said, funnel your enthusiasm, you know, 
into good questions. Funnel your enthusiasm that we're getting somewhere and this is going well. Don't just go like, oh, I get it now and start talking of what you think, right? You stay decentered mm-hmm. yet influential and you you funnel that into the question you ask rather than making a statement to where it's putting the spotlight on you as the expert, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and that is part of the therapeutic work that we do too is creating a space for the person yeah. rather than for ourselves. You know, we may be excited or maybe, you know, uh, um, looking forward to being able to support someone or may have our own reactions because that's part of the relationship too. You know, that transference is going to be part of the relationship and just acknowledging that. Right. Um, but also t- telling ourselves and knowing ourselves is what we're there to do, right? What is my role and creating that space for the person. So listening to understand rather than to respond. Yeah. Uh, genuinely hearing. So in my, my master's program, we would do these exercises where it's uh, reflective listening. So yeah, yeah. reflective listening, you know, do you listen to almost essentially the spirit of what is being said rather than what is being said. So there's- Sounds like, sounds like you ever heard of the absent but implicit in narrative practices? I have not. terminology? It sounds very similar to that, but keep going. Yeah, so there's actually, there were different levels. So there were five different levels. You know, you could literally say the same thing back to the person. You could parrot. So, you know, you could say, well, well, I heard you say, and you would parrot the same exact thing back to the person. And- you know, you may think, or a lot of people may say, like, well, that would just be annoying. But there is something so profound about hearing exactly the same thing you said, you know, being reflected back to you. Um, and so there would be different levels. And at the level, level five would be that you are actually trying to hear what that person's intentions or interpretations are based on what you're saying. You know, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to have, I'm just going to. It's going to be so hard when my mom leaves. Then you're mm-hmm. thinking like, oh, you really don't want to be away from her. Or Yeah, uh, that, that does sound really similar to that principle because it, it's essentially this idea of like, if somebody's saying something, there's also something else they're saying underneath. 100%. Even if they don't even realize it, you know? Right. Like you're implying there there's something. So like, for example, if you have someone say like, I'm really tired of waking up and feeling so empty. Hmm. What, what, what are you saying when you say that? There's, there's a part of you that knows that this is not working, that this is not right. Mm-hmm. But it, there, if you have a, an, an understanding of empty, of what that is, that means what if there's an understanding of what it means to be filled or to be full of life, mm-hmm. right? And how do we have a conversation about what that is? Right. So, no, this is good stuff, Karen. This is really good stuff. Um, unfortunately, like as the, our time is starting to wind down a little bit, I, I want to kind of end, and this is something I, I love asking, uh, guests who come on the show here. This is not an easy field you've chosen. This is not for the faint of heart, right? Right. That's not. So what keeps you going? What keeps you pursuing this? way of life as an advocacy for mental health, as someone who is a clinical social worker, as someone who uh, utilizes psychotherapy and counseling in working with families and just even in everyday conversations with people. 
Yeah. What what keeps you going with through all that? Honestly, it's it's people. People and being able to see what they gain through mm. this process. Um, and I feel rewarded too because I feel like this is not happening in a void, right? This is happening in relationship. Yeah. And that, you know, sometimes I've left conversations with people where someone was extremely angry and I was just meant to hold space for that person who was yeah. experiencing so much anger. And I've literally questioned and asked myself after leaving that conversation, like, Lord, how do you hold all of our experiences, you know, and I know God is infinite. Of course, you know, he has the capacity to do that for all of us, but there's such a parallel process, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of helps me. And I said, you know, social work, it does feel a lot like a way of life. Yeah. Um, and it feels like almost kingdom work, you know, that it's, it is in a lot of ways, a lot of the same values. Um, so to me, it's ministry, it's being in relationship to people, yeah. it's being a healer, um, it's being a person who's known for that. And it's it's rewarding to yeah. to be able to do this kind of work with other people and for them to also reap the benefit of that. So mm. that for me, even though it's tough, there's there's days that are really extra tough, but there's yeah. there's also a lot of benefit and a lot of goodness that I get to see. Yeah. Well, and I've appreciated so much the way that you bring this awareness wherever you go. Even, you know, we, we're a part of the same church community. And even there, the way that you bring about a voice of reason for mental health and helping yeah. people, everyday people understand the importance of it and taking that into consideration in our conversations. Mm -hmm. So I definitely it's think that that's something that you know, for all the faults and problems of our generation, I hope one thing that people look back fondly on, you know, us millennials and, and this time is that, well, they, they began taking mental health more seriously and pushed for it to be yeah. taken more seriously. Yeah. And so that is something that I am very grateful for that not just millennials, but just in the time that we're in right now that yeah. we're, we're doing. I think COVID has kind of pushed us a little more in that direction you know, yeah. because it has become more of a necessity. We've noticed a lot more of the anxious thoughts, you know, and so if any good has come from us being able to notice more, experience that more, is that maybe there is more awareness and more conversation. Um, and there definitely is a lack of resources as far as everyone having the same equal access yeah. um, for mental health. But I think there's more awareness overall because there's more discussions that are happening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you're in the Palm Beach County area and you are listening to this and what Karen is saying is resonating with you about maybe you have a family, children, right? And you you know, someone like Karen might be beneficial to have around you. How could How could people get connected with... So that. the program that I work for is actually entirely free um, and you can call 211 um, and request being connected with uh, mental health services for a new child um, and someone will reach out to you and you can get connected through that process. There'll be some assessments that will have to be completed, questions, you know, we just love yeah. those. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, that's a, that's an easy way to, yeah. to start that process. Awesome. 
Well, Karen, thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and almost like uh, building bridges uh, yeah. between narrative therapy and the the family psychotherapy, social work, a lot, lot of things mm -hmm. wrapped in there, right? But building uh, bridges there. Absolutely. And so I think that's what we need to do more of uh, in the time that we're in. So Karen, thank you so much once again. And for everyone you, out there, if you want to learn more about what we're doing uh, through all things narrative, uh, I do do some one-on-one -on -one coaching, um, pr particularly where I focus on these more intentional states and helping that to deal with our problems and to move towards a more meaningful, preferred, alternative, life-giving narrative um, because this time that we have is short. This life that we have is a vapor. And so how do we make the most of it and how do we pursue a meaningful story to live by? And so check out allthingsnarrative.com if you want to learn more about that. Check out what Karen is doing if you want to be connected. But thank you again, Karen. Thank you so much, Derek. I appreciate this conversation and the opportunity to be on your awesome podcast. Yay. And this is your friendly narrative practitioner, Derek, signing off saying thank you so much. And until next time, take care.